I had this self-driven nature that just got me up every morning at 5 a.m. I would actually like literally wake up and I'd be sitting in the car and honking the horn, you know, telling her, get dad, like I'm going to be late for swimming, let's go. So I think it really has to come from within. That's the first thing as an athlete. Um, I think it is my first state level competition. I actually just got a bronze medal. And when I got that bronze medal, I was furious, you know, I was just like, I want that gold. And how old were you? I was just, just 10. So this is not even a year after I learned how to swim. Hi, I'm Kadambari and welcome to the first season of the Iconic Women podcast. In this debut outing, we're going to meet eight incredible women from different walks of life who will share their inspiring life journeys with us. Our first guest is an Olympic swimmer and Arjuna awardee who has been a role model for aspiring athletes across the globe. Her prowess in the water is not just defined by her impressive collection of medals, but also her sheer passion to be the best at her sport. Courage and inspiration in motion, she was the only Indian athlete to win 14 gold medals at the National Games in 1999. I am delighted and honoured to share this space with her today and to get to know about her inspiring story dotted with amazing milestones. So, let's dive right in and welcome our first guest on the Iconic Women podcast first season, Nisha Millet. Hi Nisha and welcome to the Iconic Women podcast. I'm super, super excited to have you here finally. Excited to be here as well. Nisha, I have to start out by asking you, you know, I have been reading about you since I was in my teens, since we were in our teens, yeah. in fact. You have always been this amazing achiever, uh, super focused, goal-oriented. What did it feel like to have all of this at such a young age? I think sports just came naturally to me and I feel like I really was self-driven. So for a nine-year-old, you can have your parents pushing you, your coach pushing you into a sport. But unless you really want it, especially back in the 90s, uh, where, you know, sports wasn't really glamorous, you didn't have these big icons that you could look up to, especially female sports people. The second I found that I loved the water, um, I had this, you know, internal, like, self-driven nature that just got me up every morning at 5 a.m. I would actually, like, literally wake up and I'd be sitting in the car and honking the horn, you know, telling her, get dad, like, I'm going to be late for swimming, let's go. So I think it really has to come from within. That's the first thing as an athlete. I heard you mention somewhere that when you were five, you were kind of literally thrown into the deep end, right? I yeah. think it was a pond and it was a small mishap that happened. Yeah. And I, I think that put you off water for some time. Mm -hmm. So what happened between five and nine? Exactly. I, you know, imagine it wasn't like a natural sport. I didn't get into the water and swim like a fish. I actually had hydrophobia because I was knocked in when I was playing with some friends. It was just a couple of seconds by the time my dad yanked me out and I was fine, but just those few seconds of being underwater, when you're swallowing water, you're trying to scream. Right. Um, I was so panicked that I lived in Chennai and I would refuse to go to the sea, would refuse to go to any swimming pool. And finally, when I was nine, uh, it was a very hot Chennai summer. And my dad said, let's just go and have fun. Let's go. And he enrolled me for classes. And it was terrible, literally being thrown into the deep end again, because in, that, in those days, that's how swimming was taught. You know, before they teach you how to blow bubbles or to enjoy the water, they throw you into the deep end. Right. And so it brought back that phobia. And so finally, it was my dad who really got me to learn swimming, to fall in love with the water. And thank God he did, because I would have missed out on so much. 
And how long did that take from when you were thrown into the deep end again? Yeah. Um, when you became that child who was honking and waiting for the parents to come and take her to the pool? I think it was very quick and it's probably because I trusted my dad so much. You know, he was somebody who enjoyed water, grew up, you know, on Marina Beach in Chennai. So he wanted me to just have fun initially. He said, come, I'll teach you. Forget about your classes. Your, I can see you're really nervous. He would just have fun with me. We'd splash water. So it was a span of about six months where I started enjoying the water to actually becoming obsessed with it almost. I wanted to swim all the time. I didn't want to, I'd finish, you know, my school, rush, get my swimming bag and be back in the pool. So I started swimming five to six times a week. Wow. And that's when I realized and my parents said, oh, wow, she really enjoys the sport. She's picking up really well. You know, where can she go from here? So, you know, Nisha, speaking of being thrown into the deep end. Yeah. Did life metaphorically continue to do that to you as well as you grew up? I think now I actually take the plunge myself. I jump right, right. in. And I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten more confident. And I think the only time that I felt like I was in over my head, I was thrown in the deep end was probably COVID. But everyone went through that as well. And, you know, being a swimmer, being a sports person, somehow helps me uh, navigate those deep waters better, I feel. Uh, what, what was it that, that kind of changed things for you during COVID? The main point is mental health and the importance that as a sports person, you know, we are managing for ourselves. We are very independent. Uh, we have to rely on our own selves. So, you know, dealing with tough times, dealing with your coaches, dealing with some targets that you set yourself, losing in competitions, dealing for, with the press um, at a young age. So I've done this for so many years. I feel like firefighting comes so naturally to me. You know, I don't panic. So you mentioned mental health, Nisha. Yeah. What was it about COVID specifically that posed those mental health challenges? I think everybody was so thrown off their guard. You're suddenly in these very extraordinary circumstances. The future is very uncertain. And I found compared to my non-athletes friends, me and my other athlete friends and from various sports, we were you know, able to navigate those deep waters since we're talking about being thrown at the deep end. But from the time you're a young kid, if you're taught that, okay, you've had a bad day, but you have the next day, you can work on whatever your weaknesses are, that really helps in a time like COVID and just this positive mindset. I, for me, it's a lot about positive self-talk. And I just had that faith. One is, this is what I really want to do. I'm sure things will get back to normal. And okay, I've been thrown this challenge. How do I now navigate these difficult circumstances? What can I do in the meantime that will make me stronger? And I found the same attitude where youngsters, there's a boy called Srihari, who's one of India's top swimmers, is an Olympian. Through COVID, he called me and said, okay, now I can't swim. I'm doing my you know, strength training at home. What else can I work on? So I said, mental strength. He said, okay, that's really good. Can I build my brand? My children thought COVID was the best time. They actually said it. They said, we love COVID. Like, what do you mean? People are dying. You know, you guys had COVID twice. Uh, they said, but we got to spend the whole day with you. Right. And so when you look at it from a child's point of view and you have a different perspective, you say, wow, actually this is almost like a gift, this time that you have with your family with no interruptions. Um, so I think a lot of the positive mindset, though, came from my days as an athlete, for sure. I, I hear you completely, Nisha, and I resonate with that yeah. because um, I think I was such a busy parent from yeah. the time my kid was uh, a toddler. Yeah. And I think it was only during COVID that I could solve my mother guilt because <laughs> yeah. finally we were seeing each other 24-7, 365. Exactly. You know, so I, I completely hear you. It was very different for kids than it yes, was for it us. Was first, yeah. um, but you mentioned that during COVID, um, is when you decided to take a course and you enrolled um, in, in therapy, right? Yeah. As, a, as a therapist. Yes. Um, 
So what what made you do that? Uh, so I'd say two reasons. One, a uh, very tragic loss of a swimmer who used to train with me. At only 16, she took her own life. And um, it was because she didn't have anyone to talk to or confide in. Uh, she was being cyberbullied. And when I heard about it, I just cried for days. You know, And uh, I just said, like, you know, this is really bad. And then I also started thinking about how many young athletes I mentor, or even kids that come through my academy who want to have a quick word with me after class. And I said, surely, uh, as somebody who uh, is a mentor to a lot of young kids or even athletes who speak to me on and off, I should know if somebody is really troubled. I should talk more about the importance of mental health. And uh, the other thing I think that really um, struck with me is also the transition. When an athlete stops competing, they don't know what to do with their life. They're stuck in this kind of limbo. And there's nobody to really help with the mental health of athletes once they finish their sport. When you're in your sport, you have your sports psychologist. They'll take care of you. Uh, and once you finish your sport and you have to go back into the real world, you know, where you're not the center of attention, uh, your sport doesn't define who you are. And uh, I said, I have all this free time. I'm a psychology student. I was always very enamored by the subject oh, of psychology. Okay. So I thought, OK, let me do something where I have at least the foundation skills. Mm. And the timing was perfect, where just as I finished my counseling course and got certified as a counselor, yeah. then pools opened up. You know, so I did this purely, one, for myself, because a lot of you know, becoming a counselor is dealing with your own issues. Mm. And uh, as an athlete, we're just taught to always be, uh, I have all the answers, I can do it, you know, there's right. nothing I can't handle. Um, you know, I'm physically strong, I'm mentally strong. But what we don't deal with a lot as an athlete is, am I emotionally strong? You don't have to have an issue to go to a counselor. It could just be, you know, how can I perform better at my work? How can I be a stronger uh, woman or a mom, a better mom? Um, how do I take care of myself more? And it doesn't have to be uh, a taboo word. I think a lot right. of people now, after hearing you know, icons, whether it's an actress like Deepika Padukone coming and talking about yeah. mental health issues, starting her own uh, NGO as well. Um, you had so many Indian athletes. We had the Pogat sisters who said, mentally, I'm not there. Simone Biles, you know, the, uh, the famous um, gymnast. gymnast who actually pulled out when she could have easily won that Olympic gold, saying, right. my mental health has to be prioritized. So if there's one takeaway from COVID, I think for everyone, it's that you have to prioritize your mental health. Because without that, all the money and the fame and the power in the world means nothing. Means nothing, yeah. yeah. Um, so when you mentioned sports psychologists, when yeah. you're in the game, right? Yeah. Um, is what what they do, is it different from, you know, what you started to practice? Very different, because I managed to speak to a sports psychologist when I was in Australia. It helped me tremendously, like how to deal with the press, uh, how to, um, you know, speak to even my parents who didn't even realize they were putting pressure on me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it, they were very well-meaning, saying, you know, the Olympics is coming, you haven't really qualified yet. Right. You know? and, and it got a lot. I was only not even 18 at that point, I was 17. And I was in a foreign country. I was training in Australia. And I met this great psychologist and just had a few sessions. And you know, uh, she mentioned that um, you need to speak up for yourself. You need to tell people, this is what I want. And as a counselor, it's very different. You go back all the way to your childhood. Like right. you very rarely hear a sports psychologist talk about your childhood, unless you've been with them for a long time. Mm. Otherwise, it's all about, OK, what are your goals? What do you think your challenges are? You know, Let's try and talk about race day, your preparation. How do you deal with an injury? But as a counselor, it's all about, you know, what, uh, what, what about your childhood experiences has shaped right, you? Right. And what are the ones that are detrimental, which you can slowly start working on? A lot of self-reflection. So as an athlete, we do this so much with our sport. Counselor, I think, showed me an entirely different uh, side of me, uh, you know, more vulnerable side. Like, vulnerability is not something that even is ever talked about till now. Show. 
you know, but now you have some of the top athletes in the world who share uh, stories on social media and they're crying after a loss or mm. uh, talking about some struggle that they've had. It could be mental health, losing a loved one. So I think when it comes to vulnerability as an athlete of the 90s, we were not taught that vulnerability is a good quality. We were saying, you know, your competitors should not see the vulnerable side of you. Right. They should not know that you have a weakness. You know, this is your game face. When you show up at the competition, however tired, nervous, scared, you need to have this really, you know, a straight face, put your earphones on, look tough. And uh, that's one thing I really found that kept coming, that word kept coming up in counseling. Mm -hmm. And uh, even my, when you are doing counseling, you also have a counselor talking to you, purely about yourself. Right. And she said, even in, when you're talking to me, you're not telling me what your issues are, what your weaknesses are. And initially, I was like, no, I don't have too many weaknesses. And then obviously, <laughs> I turned out that everybody does, and I had so many. Right. Um, in the in the 90s, right? Yeah. I think late 80s, early 90s is yeah. when you had started training. Yeah. Um, so what was the world of competitive sports and competitive swimming like <laughs> back in the day? I think in those days, it was just uh, the cricketers, this cricket obsession. Right, right. <laughs> so on principle, I don't watch cricket matches because I said, you have a billion plus people watching cricket and we need to watch other sports. And uh, I think it was very tough because there was absolutely no funding. Uh, social media was not big. Here we had a few news channels, you had the papers. And uh, even finding role models to look up to, female role models, was something which was very difficult. And, um, you know, I, I had a couple of male role models like a Leander Pays. And when I finally got to meet him face to face, I remember the excitement of being on the same team as him, him being the captain of the 2000 Olympics. And I literally had cut out his picture and, you know, I had it on my wall, like a lot of kids had in the right. 90s. And you take a newspaper article or a, something you find in a magazine and you put it on your wall and you look up and you say, I want to be like him one day. So I think it's great. It was a simpler time for sure, but it was very, very difficult, especially for parents. Um, swimming being an amateur sport, we don't get prize money when we win. So my parents would have put 70 to 80 lakhs, sold their house, moved us to Bangalore, invested all their money into my career. And I was one of the few who made it to the Olympics. There were so many who, whose parents probably put in as much and they didn't get as far. Right. You know? So in those days, sports wasn't something you could look at as a profession even when you retired. Nisha, would you say that um, this scenario, right, that you've yeah. just described, was it harder for female athletes back in the day than it was for male athletes? Definitely, because even prize money was less. Uh, if you are uh, in a, uh, like a sport friend of mine, Aparna Popat, she's one of India's top uh, badminton players. She was 10 years national champion. I remember her prize money was less than the men. And she would say, why? When it's a professional sport, you're getting prize money. Everyone should be paid equally. But now it's so nice to see even the women's cricketers are getting similar right. rates, you know. And uh, some of our top athletes who are earning the big bucks through endorsements, of course, they are Olympic champions or world champions, whether it's a Medicom or a Sindhu. They have managers looking after their well-being, uh, you know, uh, partnering with brands that they really love to uh, promote. And at least, you know, their career, they don't have to worry about having to stop competing because of lack of funds. But in our day, there was always this fear, like we're going to run out of money and then you have to stop your career. And ultimately, that happened for me. You know, I mean, I missed my second Olympics. I qualified in 2000. 2004, I missed the Olympics. And then I said, I can't do another four-year stint because my parents did not have that money. And I had just started sw teaching swimming uh, to supplement the income. And I realized that I need to do more of this. You know, I really have to now think about my parents and our well-being. My sister also was younger than me. And I now need to step up and be the adult and look after them, you know. So it was very difficult. There's so many stories of talented athletes who dropped out, female athletes. Learning to swim under your father's guidance, yeah. that must have been a very unique journey. A really great thing about my dad is he was not a professional athlete himself, but he always watched the greats. Uh, he always thought I would be the next Steffi Graf. 
and he would make me watch these competitions. And um, you know, for uh, a dad to look at both his daughters and say, "Okay, they, you guys can be sports stars," it reminds me so much, so much of the you know uh, C uh, Serena and Venus Williams. You see this, right. the movie which is made of them and their dad really pushing them and driving them. I think there has to be that one parent, and I was lucky to have both. He would read, he would get books from America, and he would read up, and he'd make me read. He'd make me watch videos of other athletes, you know, those VHS tapes. Right. And, uh, you know, he would say, look at their mistakes. Can you see any mistakes? And yeah. then when you're swimming, watch your own strokes. See if you can pinpoint something. We didn't have underwater filming and underwater videos. You know, so now we have analysis now. But, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have those tools. So I think he was very ahead of his time. Uh, moving us from Chennai to Bangalore was such a huge shift. And he did that purely for my swimming career because he realized that top academies are here. When did you first get the sense that you were going to be an ace swimmer? Do you remember that that specific the moment? moment? <laughs> um, I think it was my first state-level competition. I actually just got a bronze medal. And when I got that bronze medal, I was furious. You know, I was just <laughs> like, everyone is like, wow, you've got a state medal. And I was like, I want that gold. And how old were you? I was just, just 10. So this is not even a year after I learned how to swim. And it, I started picking up really quickly. And uh, I think the mindset of, I just want to beat everyone, whether it's wow. a boy, girl, somebody older, somebody younger. Um, I just wanted to go out there and compete. Like even to date, I love competition. A lot of what I do in my regular life, whether I'm doing CrossFit, it's all revolving around pushing myself beyond what I think is capable, I'm capable of. You know, I want to push the limits. And it's, it's uh, very common for most sports people. So I think when I won that first bronze and I said, I'm really unhappy with this. I want to get back and I want to win the gold. And after that, I was like, I don't want silvers. I don't like silvers and bronzes. I want that gold. You know, so I just really um, would keep thinking about that bronze medal, the fact that I lost that medal that entire year till I competed next and then I won that gold. So I let right. that failure kind of motivate me. And um, now, of course, like if you talk to my kids, um, they look at me and like, oh, mom went to the Olympics. I can go too. You know, so it's all about, you know, looking at this impossible dream and thinking, yes, it is possible. And looking up to people that you can admire. I go and try and speak to any of the top swimmers, learn from them. And yeah, so that's pretty much my story. I think of the point where I realized, okay, this is what I want to do. And I knew it was a big commitment and I was ready to do it. So you have twin daughters, yes. right? Um, and they're like nine or 10 years old? They're going to be 10 soon. Okay. And I think that, if I'm not wrong, they yeah. are really amazing athletes and <laughs> gymnasts themselves, right? Yes, and I've tried to expose them to different sports because as a swimmer, it's easy for me to say, I want you to go to the Olympics in yeah. swimming. Uh, but one, I've a lot of my friends who've had uh, kids, who have kids, have always talked about how sometimes they don't choose the same sport. If you look at Leander Pace, his dad was a hockey Olympian and he's now you know, a tennis star. Um, so there are a lot of people who say, expose your children to different sports. And, you know, I also am aware of the fact that maybe they won't get to the Olympics, but I want them to try out sports. They do CrossFit, they do swimming. And the best part, I think, for them is just learning that girls can be tough. They can beat boys, they can be independent. You know, there's so many good qualities that come from learning sports. So they um, now they're at a point where they're getting really tall. Uh, they're racing me in the pool, which I never thought would happen. I thought I have a couple more years. <laughs> Turns out they're, you know, pretty qu uh, quick learners. They just started competing now. And um, it is a struggle because I have a very different temperament to, I've got twins and Adele, um, she is very much like me. Like she'll say things like, I'm gonna crush my competition. <laughs> and that sounds so much like myself. And uh, Ariana, the other twin, uh, she says, you know, if my friend feels sad and she wants to win the race, I let her. And for me, I'm like, what? You let somebody, you know, uh, take a medal from you? Yeah, it'll make her feel better. So 
to have a daughter who thinks that way and that's so kind and so nice. And you know, she might change when she's older, she might mature as an athlete, but I have to be like, okay, so this is who she is. I need to, you know, and it's very similar to my sister. My sister would come third and she'd be like, wow, I got a medal. And here I'll be getting a gold and I'll be crying like, you know, my timing wasn't good. So I think uh, learning to deal with their different personalities and just giving them that exposure. Um, I've seen really positive changes, but also great to see like one is more interested in gymnastics. Suddenly the next day she wants to be a ballet dancer. But the other one is very clear. I want to swim at the Olympics. Wow. She says, we are from a swimming family. You know, there's, <laughs> what's, why were you asking me that question? I want to be at the Olympics, you know. So, so you're considering, uh, say, like the 2032 Olympics for your daughters? <laughs> yeah. I was just joking with them and saying, you know, I qualified when I was 18. Uh, so 2032, you'll be 19. I'm giving you an extra year. So it's just, I think it's good that they have a bit of balance in their life. When you start becoming a competitive athlete, that balance goes because you have to be focused on that one sport. You know, I think it's important to talk about role models yeah. because uh, when it comes to athletes specifically, right, yeah. um, there is there are so many people that you look up to. Uh, were there women role models, you know, at a time when you were growing up and there were really not a lot of women in sports in India? I think for us, we had very few that we could really look up to. And uh, I would say I learned a lot more from my seniors. We had big names like uh, Ashwini Nachapa, P.T. Usha. And, but there wasn't too much of access, there wasn't too much knowledge about how did they get to the top. So I think I learned a lot from one of my closest friends, I mentioned her before, Aparna Popat. And uh, she had already been national champion for many years. She moved to Bangalore, lived on her own for her badminton. And uh, just in her conversations, uh, I think I really learned the most. I would say she was probably my role model growing up. I had a couple of you know international swimmers that I looked up to, one who was doing her medicine and still competing and winning Olympic gold medals. You know, to, to me, the fact that you can do, do them both uh, was just mind-blowing. But uh, Aparna is someone who really shaped my whole way of thinking. Uh, even to me now, as an athlete or even as a mom of maybe future athletes, somebody like Mary Com, who became a mom, has twins like I do, three kids in fact, and still went and got world championship medals, Olympic medals. Somebody like her kind of tells you that everything is possible. Or somebody like a Sindhu, who was a very timid girl, who learned how to be aggressive on court, you know, who just had this passion for the game and then she's an Olympic champion now and she continues to play. So we have so many great female role models now. If it's somebody like a Deepa Karmakar, imagine for young right. gymnasts to have a gymnast at the Olympics coming in fourth, missing a Olympic medal. You mentioned um, that you had the logo yes. of the Olympics cut out of a newspaper stuck on your yeah. wall. I think that was your reminder that this is where your ultimate goal lies, yeah. right? Um, how did it feel when you actually made it there? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. I think when you have a dream that takes, you know, so much of your life, I've missed friends, birthday parties, school functions, uh, you know, on my birthday I was swimming, festivals I was swimming, Jan first morning I was in the pool. Uh, I would have to go back and look at that postcard of the Olympic rings and say, this is why I'm doing it. You know, the days when literally sometimes my parents had to roll me out of bed because I had that much physical pain. You know, and uh, you have to put into perspective that this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. And um, like they say, athletes uh, learn so much because they fail more than they succeed. So I missed two Olympics, 1996 when I was very, very young and the 2004 Olympics. So in 96 when I didn't qualify and the government got to choose whoever they want to and, you know, I wasn't picked. And I remember having a conversation with my dad and he said, if you want to be at the Olympics, you have to earn your way. You know, no one's going to you know, give you a free ticket to the Olympics. And, you know, when I put that four years of hard work 
um, you know, when I, whether it's being really strict about my diet, moving to Australia, taking a year off from college just to pursue a dream. When I was actually at the Olympics, I was so emotional. I was at the opening ceremony when I think it kind of struck me because you see the Olympic torch being lit and you see thousands of athletes marching in the stadium. And uh, I was in tears, like happy tears. And sitting next to me was many years later became India's first uh, Olympic, individual Olympic gold medalist, Abhinav Bindra. Wow. And he was my age as well. He was 18. So I think as an 18-year-old, it was probably like one of the greatest moments of my life to say that I have actually done this. Uh, walking into the, um, into the athletes' dining area and seeing one of the greatest um, Olympians, greatest athletes, Muhammad Ali, who had Parkinson's, but through his uh, physical ailments has come to cheer on the fellow Olympians. You know? So really, I think other than the birth of my daughters, that would have to be like the standout moment for me. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> You've, um, you know, you've spent quite a lot of time in Australia and in your formative years as an athlete. Yeah. What did that do for you? What was it like? I think they have a very different mindset. Uh, maybe we are moving towards it as a, as a sporting country now. But when I went there, um, we were always talking about, oh my God, I don't have this, I don't have that. Um, so when we were in India, we were always saying the foreign athletes are so, um, they have so many more advantages than us. They have Sports science is much more advanced, and we always wanted to go there and train. And when I went there, I realized it's a lot also about their attitude. Uh, and they were brought up that way. They're tough, like, you know, they finished their swimming sessions. We'd go back, and our parents would be like, oh, you poor things, you're so tired. Don't do anything. We'll open out your swimming bag. We'll put it out. These people, some of them are back to jobs, you know. They have to earn. Um, if they're not able to be supported by the government, they would earn their own way. But would you say that India has progressed considerably in the last, say, 15 or 20 years? And what's what's left? I mean, what's what do we need to do? Still? I would say even things like body image, which is a big deal for sports people. For me, they would say, oh my god, you'll get tanned. Why don't you choose another sport? Was this your family or yeah, your Yeah, I mean, my grandmom, you know, and she was a little darker and she was so excited that we were a little more fair than she was. And she said, oh my god, now you're getting tanned and you're my, the same color as me. And, you know, you know, a, a very flippant comment like, uh, who will marry you? And finally, if you see my husband now, he's this very, very fair Bengali guy, you know. And uh, I never even thought of uh, my color as, as any kind of detriment. And when I went to Australia, especially, they would say, wow, look at your wonderful tanned bronze skin. They were, I was like, you know, everyone wanted my skin. So I think as Indians, we first have to let go of these cultural biases. Um, a lot of these uh, things have been drilled into our parents' heads or even into our heads, and we need to slowly change that narrative and tell girls that they can do it. Uh, even something like, you know, swimmers or most athletes have very broad shoulders. They don't have this very delicate kind of uh, structure, but that's good because the whole conversation, I think, has to change around being skinny uh, to being strong. So you can be, you know, thinner and strong. You can be, right. uh, you know, uh, have more, uh, like a higher body weight and still be strong. So this obsession with wanting to be very skinny, even uh, you know moms who've just given birth, wanting to lose so many sizes, girls are prioritizing strength, having like a six pack, you know, instead of worrying about a thigh gap, they're now worried about right. you know, oh I have a six pack, that's so great. Like my my daughters are always flexing, like let me check your biceps compared to mine. So that really because it's very normal for a boy to do it, right? But for a girl, and uh, why why isn't it something that we can look up to? Uh, you know, having a strong physique will really take you through so many things. You know? So I think that has changed a lot. We can do more of it to talk about how we love our body, we accept who we are. I'm sure that you came up against a lot of bureaucracy when you were trying to achieve your goals. What did that look like? Um, so it's very important as an athlete to be able to say no 
And uh, that's when the bureaucracy comes in where you have a lot of the politicians who are head of federations. So at one point, my sister was chosen for the Asian Games team. And one day before that, they say, um, we have to give other families a chance. And since Nisha is going, we have to cut your name from the team. Mm -hmm. And you know, they send an athlete who had performed worse than she did. And so she was devastated, and she quit swimming. So not just me, so many athletes have had premature careers, had to quit because they really couldn't speak out. I was always very vocal, so I think that helped. Um, you know, and sometimes you know that sometimes if you speak up in those days, maybe you'd actually miss out on the next competition. You know, so mm -hmm. I've had so many times where uh, once there was a huge incident where I was representing India at my first World Championships. It's a huge event, and because I was at the national camp in Delhi, I was being accompanied. Uh, you know, to the to Perth um, by the national coach at that time, who wasn't actually a coach. You know, he was just uh, somebody was put there so that he gets this you know wonderful opportunity. And um, so I went. We had a stop off in Singapore. My dad was meeting us at the airport, and uh, he forgot that he had to take me to the airport. And I didn't have an alarm, or the alarm didn't go off. And I was stuck in Singapore in the airport. He had my passport, the tickets with him, and he had gone to the airport already. And I'm stuck. I woke up later and realized it's late. And I didn't have money, my passport, anything. And a kind lady took me to the airport. And then finally, I mean, to cut a story short, my father was furious. And he told this coach, how could you do it? You had one athlete to look after, and you couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm going to make a big deal of this when we go back. And he said, if you say a word to the press, this is the, it'll be the last time your daughter ever swims a meet. And it's actually happened to other athletes. You know, So at the time, my dad, obviously, to make sure Buckle that my down. career continues, didn't say anything. But once I stopped swimming, I have been so vocal. And now I think things have changed where social media, uh, you can air your grievances, whether if you saw the last protest, you know, where the wrestlers came out very, very strongly. And you know, for the most part, it's probably the biggest show of solidarity and support I've ever seen uh, for young um, wrestlers, girls, all ages, to come out there and say, we are not taking this anymore. Yeah. Uh, so I think now things have changed where we can speak up and um, the whole country you know, kind of supported them for the most part. And um, things were not like that in those days. So they would literally be worried that um, you could do or say something that will anger these bureaucrats, and your career will come to an end. So that's very, very sad. So you won all five freestyle gold medals at the senior national level when you were still a sub-junior. Yes, I was just 12, and I decided that I wanted to race everyone. I had won my age group. I was a sub-junior, so I had won the national level. And I said, why not swim the seniors? It wasn't the done thing, right? They would say, when you're 15 or 16, then you can look at going into the senior categories. And it's open to anyone. It's called an open swimming meet. So I said, if I'm 12, who cares? I'll just you know, put myself in there. And when I got there, I think the fact that I was new and I was young, um, it kind of threw them off guard. And I never really thought about age, right? I was just like, whoever's in the uh, race next to me, I'm going to beat them. So I actually won all the events. So I won the 50, 100, 200, 400, and 800. Oh my god! <laughs> so yeah, it was just excellent. But you know, it was, um, I think uh, exhausting, of course. But that exhilaration, I think, continued from event to event, right? So that kept me going. That adrenaline high never stopped. And like, I'm not a great sprinter, so I normally do better in the longer distances. But I even won the 50. So I think it was a bit of that adrenaline, that rush that you get from you know doing something that even you don't know that you know you're capable of. Was that the moment that you announced your arrival on the national stage? Yes, I think then they said, oh my god, this young kid, we need to take her seriously. And I remember going back and, you know, even the boys wanted to race with me. So I, I, for me, it was a sense of pride, like, you know, I want to race everyone. So I think that's a great thing to have. And also in life as well, I think if you keep thinking about 
you know, I have these uh, disadvantages, these people have these advantages. If you look at even the foreigners, they have better physique than us. Uh, but at the same time, you have Japanese swimmers who have our physique or sometimes shorter than, you know, these uh, six foot five, six foot six uh, international medalists. They're still winning Olympic medals. So it really has nothing to do with it. It's really about your mindset, uh, your training, how you prepare. And, uh, you know, yeah, I think that was a, a pivotal moment where there was no looking back. You know, we knew that, you know, there was, I knew that there was a lot in my future and I was going to do everything to get to my goals. You were the first Indian swimmer. Yeah. Uh, to qualify for the Olympics, and you represented India in Sydney 2000. Take us back to that moment. I was very lucky to get an International Olympic Committee scholarship, which they give to athletes from, in those days, we were called third world countries, who did not have the funding. And I got to train in Australia, which is an amazing sporting uh, you know, ecosystem. And I think it was just a combination of uh, having a support team, being away from all, any kind of distraction, just my mom and me. And uh, I remember, the actual Olympic qualifiers were a month and a half away. And I took part in the junior nationals in Australia. And if you qualified, you could. But I didn't even think of it as an Olympic qualifier. I just said, let me see how my timings are. And maybe the fact that I didn't put that stress on myself, uh, I remember the morning of the race, it's a heat. And typically, you swim better in the evening in the finals. So I was getting ready to go to the finals. And I said, OK, I need to perform well in the heats. I remember getting to the water. And like they say, you're in the zone, you know, where everything just falls into place. I felt great in the warm-up. Um, I got ready to start my race. And as I dived in, you know, all that training, and this is years and years of training, fell into place. Like, I just felt amazing. I blocked out all the distractions. I knew how many strokes to the wall. I knew how to do my flip turn. And I remember trying to compete with whoever was in my lane. And uh, I won my heat. And I was just excited. Oh, wow, I won my heat, so I should make it to the finals. And I didn't even look up at the scoreboard because I wasn't expecting any big timing. And I could, first thing I do, like in most of my competitions, is look at my mom's face. And my mom was sitting up in the stands, and she was just going crazy. I'm like, OK, like don't get so excited. It's just the heats. I've not won a medal. I have to still go to the finals. And then she's like pointing and saying, look, look at your timing. And then I looked, and I couldn't believe my eyes, because two minutes, eight seconds was the Olympic qualifying. And I went two minutes, six seconds. So like almost uh, you know, two seconds off that. And I remember just being in shock you know, and not even knowing how to react. And then. My coach in Australia uh, you know, figured it out. I said, oh my god, you made the qualifying. And uh, so it also maybe the fact that I just swam my own race. There was no pressure on me. Uh, I had the best possible training leading up to that. And the best part of all was going back home and calling my dad. And he just said, so how was your swim? I said, oh, it was good. Did you make the finals? Yeah, I won my heat. I'm in the finals. And what was your timing? You know, so I didn't mention. I just very casually said, yeah, this is my timing. And he's like, oh my god, that's the Olympic qualifying. You know, He was so excited. And I think my parents have asked them this many times, that even if I didn't go to the Olympics, would you have done anything different? They said no. But definitely hearing those, those words from me, uh, calling all my friends, my coach in India, uh, who was one of the, you know, one of very, played a huge role, I would say, to the point that maturity of a coach saying, I've got you till here, but I feel like you need that one extra step, which is to train out of you know, the country. So for him, not to have been there, uh, you know. So a few months later, when I got the Arjuna Award, just before the Olympics, yeah. I got to meet him and call him for that function. But that day is so vivid in my mind, and it was, you know, such a pure moment of joy. And uh, I think you always try and recreate that, and you can never really get that first Olympics that you qualify for. It's such a special moment, yeah. Nisha, you held the national record in 200 meters and 400 meters for 15 years. Why did it take so long to catch up? 
uh, yeah, that was very disappointing. Even though you are excited about your record, records are meant to be broken. So every time there was a national meet, I would be like, this year someone's going to break it. And there was a bit of lull in women's swimming for many reasons. And we didn't see that in the, with the male. You know, the men's swimming really took off. Uh, records were being broken every year. But there was a long uh, break where my records, my sisters, another Olympian called Shika, our records were not touched for 10 to 15 years and only see it now. Um, I feel a lot of that it has to do with girls not prioritizing sports when they get to their 10th grade or they have to worry about, should I take a professional course or should I continue swimming? They didn't stay the course. Like we stayed the course, even if it meant taking a year off from college and doing it later. Uh, we took those hard decisions and stuck to our competitive sport. A lot of women, I think, felt like there is no uh, scope for me to earn or like, you know, have a, you know, make swimming a profession. I can't earn a living out of this, so let me just stop. So we lost a lot of good swimmers. It's not that India doesn't have it. And there were a lot of women going into swimming, but just not able to reach those timings. So it's great to see in the last three, four years, though, that now we have a lot of 13, 14 year olds, uh, you know, breaking the senior national records, setting best Indian performances. Um, so you really have to, and there's been a lot of discussion about this, like why was women swimming had, you know, why did they have such a lull for so long? And so that's why I think it's important for even athletes when they finish their career, female athletes as well, to get back into their sports, to help the next generation, right? To pass on whatever kind of knowledge that you have, um, to help them in any way that you can. And now I feel women's swimming is finally back up there and you know, hopefully we'll see records going every year. That's the best part about sports is records being broken. You balance motherhood, uh, mentorship, now you have a business. Yeah. What does that balancing act look like for you? And how do you inspire your daughters from day to day? I would say the toughest thing for me is to learn to say no. For the longest time, I really did not know how to say no. And, you know, I was just overwhelmed. And uh, this is something I still struggle with where, you know, I overcommit to things. And I feel like I have to constantly prioritize, like, you know, remember that I want to spend more time with my family. For me, it's more about assessing my role and figuring out what is highest on my priority. Obviously, it's my family. And I remember post-COVID when pools reopened, I was so excited that pools are back and functioning. I was overworking. And again, not spending enough time with my kids. And what I love about my daughters is they're very vocal. And they're just like, Mom, you're a workaholic and you're not spending enough time with us. They literally said, no, don't be with your swimming children. Be with your real children. <laughs> you know, So sometimes you need that little bit of a harsh wake-up call from your own kids. And that's what I love about kids is they say it as it is. They don't worry if they make you feel bad. But I realized, yes, I should be spending more time with them. And uh, so I managed to fit in everything around them who, who are my priority. But I still get in my exercise. Uh, you know, I still manage work. And I've learned now to give up a little bit of control and let others take the lead. You know, I try not to micromanage so much. Trust my employees, uh, you know, to do their work when it comes to uh, running the academy. And I have a great partner who, of course, helps me. And he's, you know, if I'm having a tough day, he definitely helps me, kind of calms me down, gets me to relax, and we have a chat and things are back to normal. <laughs> um, Nisha, you, uh, would you say you were from a middle class family? Definitely, yeah. So what did it take for your parents to be able to take those leaps and take those mega risks in order to push your career as a swimmer? You know, I think I truly understand only now as a parent not only financial risk, but even of your own time. And I think there was absolutely no uh, guarantee that I would do anything in swimming. You know, So even though he saw me winning medals, there was no money coming back. There were no rewards that were you know, coming back where 
they knew it will help us in the future. So I really think um, you know the, the middle class family for them to one is follow my dreams, let me have my own dream, follow through with it. Um, they you know and the, now also I bring them sometimes to the pool to talk to the parents uh, at the swimming pool where I teach and to just explain to the parents you know how to help someone's career, uh, the conversations to have. I think they were very mature in those days, but um, you know to show the harsh side of being a competitive parent, um, they literally blew their entire life savings. You know, so for me, a lot of the first few years when I started working was let me give back to them. You know, so whether it was buying their first car, you know, when with my own money or sending them on a holiday, um, I think you'll forever be trying to pay back in some way. But I think what they always say is the most important thing we want is just for you to spend time with us, and they're happiest that I never decided to go out of India, and they keep saying that uh, you know we're so happy. One is we were going to help you with your career. But now you're following your passion and you're in Bangalore where we still get to be part of it. So if I have a big competition, they'll come over. My mom comes all the time to the pool. And so it's lovely to see my parents now uh, enjoying the other side where they can relax that I can take care of them. And also they can still be involved in this, in the world of swimming, which you know, for them also, like me, they had this passion and this love. Mm -hmm. So if you, I think this is where it's different where a lot of athletes nowadays and even the families start thinking about, you know, Virat Kohli earns so much. Let me put my child into that. But my parents really had that purest of intentions. My child has a dream. They learned to and they fell in love with the sport like I did. And that's why they invested so much, you know. So it takes a real uh, tough time. And they had a lot of challenges, uh, obviously. You know, when I hear you speak about how much you wanted to win, yeah. I can't help but wonder, did you ever have a plan B? <laughs> I actually didn't. It was like, you know, all or nothing. Really? And really had no other, you know, but of course my parents, my mom, I would say, would always say that um, more about not if I didn't make it as a swimmer or a competitive swimmer, but she would say, what are you going to do after you compete? You need to have that education uh, as a, uh, you know, as a uh, almost like a just kind of something to fall back on. And the good thing is they prioritized education, but they didn't force it on me. My mom was very clear. I took one or two, twice I took a year off uh, to go abroad to train. But when I came back, she was very clear. She said, finish your degree and it will always hold you in good stead. So I think that's a great attitude to have where they were not putting pressure on me, but that was the only plan B as such where you need to have something to fall back on. But for me, it was all or nothing, you know. So after the first Olympics, I got diagnosed with a back injury. I had a tumor in my backbone. And I remember at that point just being like, oh, I'll go through surgery and I'll get back to swimming. So for me, it was like almost like I had blinkers on. There was no plan B. <laughs> and then 2004 ended up being quite a turning point in yes, your swimming career yes. because of this, right? Yeah, yeah. The fact that 2004, I narrowly missed the Olympics. I finished my surgery. Yeah. I got back into the pool. I was in great uh, shape. Um, so who knows why I didn't qualify for multiple reasons. Um, I missed the qualifying time. It was really devastating because you're already an Olympian. So everyone expects you to qualify. Uh, but you know, life is not a fairy tale. and. It makes me, uh, you know, maybe value that one Olympics even more because I have these two failures. And um, for the longest time, I had like literally were haunted by that, you know, loss. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you have to learn how to pick up the pieces and move on. But that was also the point where I said, okay, I have another four years. Can my family actually afford to go through this? Like you talked about how they put so much money into my career. And that's where I said that even if I'd gone to the next Olympics, I was not at that level where I could have got an Olympic medal. You know, maybe the maximum I could have done is made it to a semi-final, looking at my timings. So that's when I said I need to take a hard call of deciding to move away from competitive sport. And in my mind, I, it was a natural transition to become an entrepreneur, uh, to start my own academy. And uh, that kind of eased it, you know, in a way. But 
2004 kind of cemented that this is not going to go on forever. I need to take a tough call. I need to maybe now transition to the next part of my life. That's kind of you know how it happened. And uh, it's still, you know, you always wonder what if. And um, it was almost like the curse of the second Olympics because after me, four other athletes went for one and missed the next Olympics. And finally, last year, it was broken by a wonderful a swimmer called Sajan Prakash, who finally became the first double Olympian in swimming. So when he did it, I actually cried because it was almost like, you know, so many athletes up after me that are good friends of mine who have seen and who have had narrow, like another girl, Shikha Tandon, missed by 0 0.02 milliseconds. Like two milliseconds, she missed her second Olympics. Uh, so just to show you that, you know, there's always ups and downs. So it's not just this you know, nice uh, bar that keeps going up. Your graph doesn't always go up. There's always an ups and downs. That's what makes your life interesting. That's, you know, the tough times probably teach you a lot more than all your victories and, you know, the, the biggest moments in your life. For aspiring athletes, yeah. what would you say makes an ideal coach? Because that relationship with a coach is yeah. so important. It's so crucial. The one thing is, uh, I think that relationship that you have outside the pool is very, very important. So even I tell my team of coaches that, while for you it's a job, you know, the way we look up at our teachers, right? When teachers say you want to give them a rose or you want to tell them about your day. Like after the class, sometimes you're tired, but the kid wants to tell you about, you know, my mommy said this and I'm going for a birthday party. I think that one or two minutes that you spend with a child or even an adult, like sometimes I do personal classes and I've taught everybody from a Nanda Nilikani to a Geetanjali Kurloskar to, you know, like people who are very accomplished. But sometimes as a teacher, you have this bond. And I do this with my coaches where they train me. You're almost like play a little part of like a psychologist or like a, you know, someone you can talk to. So I always tell them, spend those few minutes. And if you have a coach that's not willing to form that bond with you, there's no way he can be effective. Because you need to know a little bit about what motivates them, uh, you know, uh, what makes them tick. Are they going through a tough time? How can you help? You know, boundaries that you have with them, like some, you know, kids, may not be the types to share too much, but they just want you to be there and give them a high five. Some of them might want to just chat with you for 10, 15 minutes. So, um, you know, sometimes if I get regular calls from, uh, you know, an adult, I won't pick up. But I always pick up calls if it's one of my swimmers, you know. And it could be just something really random like, ma'am, we want to treat uh, this coach at the pool. So I make sure that whatever happens for the kids, I'm there for them. And for the youngsters, if you can't have that open discussion with your coach, and I think the way we treat kids also has changed, where we realize that, oh, they do know what, they, what their goals are. They do know their body. So if a, uh, an athlete tells a coach, I really feel like my shoulder might get injured if I continue any further, yeah. you need to be mature enough that even though the child is 9 or 10, listen to them, take that feedback. And you know, uh, at the end of the day, the athlete knows best. So if, some, if you don't have a coach with open lines of communication, is not going to work out. You know, one of the important reasons why we're doing this podcast is because we really want to know and want to share the legacy that women like you want to leave behind and are working for. So, so how would you like to be remembered? What is it that you would like to be remembered for? I think when I look at whether it's a six-year-old or a 70-year-old who comes to learn with me or even somebody who interacts with me, I think it's very important that they felt very seen. If I have the time and the thing, if I can put that little bit of uh, excitement into someone's life, that's the kind of legacy I want to be remembered for. So it doesn't have to be about my company as such. It doesn't have to be about my medals that I won, but just that I could approach Nisha and she's approachable and I could learn something from her. Like, you know, so many people that I have met face to face and who have really inspired me just with normal conversations, you know, uh, maybe things you know about them, but the fact that you can have that conversation with them 
I think that makes a huge difference. And do you hope that one of your daughters or both of them will take on, will carry forward yeah, the, the academy? Yeah, definitely. I think they swimming is part of their lives as well. And, you know, even small things like last year, their job, official job was uh, to go and collect all the toys at the end of the session and put it in the little baskets. And they got a little bit of pocket money for that. So I think understanding that, you know, earning something is good, but also that you have to work hard, you know, you cannot afford to cheat. So I talk about that a lot. And the fact that they could one day carry on my academy will bring me so much of joy. But if they decide that they don't want to have anything to do with swimming, I think I'll be, you know, seeing the way I was raised as well. I would be okay to say, okay, this is not your dream. Either give it to somebody else who's passionate about running it, but I would go with whatever they want to do with life, you know. That's fantastic, Nisha. I just have one final question. Yeah. <laughs> um, who is that woman that you really have a lot of admiration for? Someone who you would say is a role model yeah. for you today, someone you look up to, yeah. who's that? She could be from history. She doesn't have to be uh, a contemporary woman. Yeah. Or she could be just, you know, whatever, like someone you know. Um, I would say I like to look up to people who I've interacted with, right? Because you can read about someone and you meet them in person and they could just be totally different. Uh, for me, that woman is Kiran Majinda Short. For me, she epitomizes like the strong Indian woman who is literally... Uh, you know, taking her business from a garage. So I think she's really an inspiration because uh, if you meet her, also, she's a very calm demeanor. She has things under control. She has emotions under control. Sometimes I've seen her in some tough situations. She's dealing with, you know, a lot of noisy, angry men. She keeps her calm. So mm -hmm. I think she's somebody I really aspired. So are you okay if we dress you up as Kiran Mazumdar Shaw? Sure, I think she has great taste. Like I said, she knows herself so well. She has a signature Kiran style. I love that. Okay, let's do this and I hope I get it right. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> and after this interactive session, here's a bit that's quite close to my heart and something unique to this podcast. This is the bit where I style our guest and transform her into her role model. As you just heard, Nisha's iconic woman is the dynamic leader, Kiran Mazundar Shaw. To watch me style Nisha as Miss Mazundar Shaw, head to our YouTube channel and check out the transformation. I hope you love it. Nisha Millet, it's been wonderful having you. I really want to thank you for coming here, for opening up, for talking about various aspects of your life. It's been really, really inspiring and thank you so much. And with that, we close this episode. I hope you enjoyed this session with stories straight from the heart. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and watch super inspiring narratives of more iconic women. Every new episode drops on Friday at 6 p.m.